Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Gregory Coles, who is the author of the excellent book, Single Gay Christian, published by InterVarsity Press. He's a PhD student in English and a part-time English teacher at Penn State University and also a worship leader in his church. Greg, thank you very much indeed for coming on to The Mind Renewed. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be speaking to you, and I'm glad that the signal is so good. I mean, it's absolutely perfect. You can hear me well, and I can hear you as if you're in this room, so that's excellent. We've got that good connection going on. Now, of course, we're going to be discussing today your book, as I say, Single Gay Christian. It has the subtitle, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity. Now, InterVarsity Press sent this book to me. And I wasn't initially sure that I was going to be captivated by it, but I have to say I've been very much taken with it. I think it's beautifully written, and you're you're very open about your life in this. You tell us uh, quite intimate details, really, and um, I find it very helpful because I think you you reflect on your experience in a very theological way as an evangelical Christian, but um, you know also in a deeply personal way, which I think makes some of the questions that you bring up um, easier to understand and to relate to, um, if not necessarily agreeing with all the answers that you offer. And in fact, in many cases, you don't offer answers, do you? You are wrestling with questions. So I do recommend it. Now, just before we start, I do want to quote what's on the blurb here. This is by Don Carson. This is D.A. Carson. He's one of my heroes, world-famous New Testament scholar, quite a conservative figure. So I thought I would just say what he said about it before we get going with this. So this is a quote from Don Carson. Quote, to say this book is important is a painful understatement. It is the candid, moving, intensely personal story of a gay young man who wants to live his life under the authority of King Jesus and who refuses to accept the comforting answers proffered by different parts of the culture. Superbly written, this book stands athwart the shibboleths of our day and reminds us what submission to King Jesus looks like, what it feels like. This book needs to be thoughtfully read by straight people and by gay people, by unbelievers and by Christians. It is not to be read with a condescending smirk, but with humility, end quote. Um, you must have been delighted to get a bit of blurb like that. How did you feel about that, Greg? <laughs> oh, yes. Dr. Carson is very kind. <laughs> yeah, I would have been absolutely over the moon. Um, okay, let's jump straight into this. Greg, I want to know why it is that you wrote this book, and why did you choose to write it in such an intimate way? So the book was really sort of an accident, what happened was I was processing a lot of things. I had just come out to the pastor of my church, which I talk about in the book. Uh, I had come out to him a few months prior. Um, I had just recently come out to my parents, and I was in the process of coming out to my siblings. And in the midst of all of this, I found that there was a lot of processing I wanted to do in my own mind and heart about my experience and about what it might look like uh, to live my life from that point onward, purposefully for God, to live not just as if I was some sort of mistake, some slip of the divine chisel, but if as if God had actually meant for me having the experiences that I have to live in the time that I lived. And so I began trying to think through those questions. And as I was doing that thinking, I wrote an email to Wesley Hill, who wrote the foreword for my book, and writing to Wesley was the first time that I had ever put anything of my own life down into type, into print before. And I found I was sort of addicted to it. And so I began writing what I thought initially was a sort of a journal. And over time, it became a very, very long journal or maybe a lot of journals back to back. 
And at the end, I, I sat down and I looked at it and I said, I think I wrote a book, <laughs> which is yeah. why, which is why, uh, in retrospect, there are things that had I been intending to write a book, I probably would not have written. Mm. Uh, but because I had already written them, I was like, well, I guess I could say that to people. Yeah. And then when presumably you'd written it, did you then go back over it and craft it in various ways? Because I mean, it is really beautifully written. Oh, thank you. I did do some more crafting uh, after my first swipe at it. But to be honest, uh, because I'm not much of a journaler in general, I have a tendency whenever I write something to sort of craft as I go. So a lot of it was drafted very much in the way that you see it, which is part of why there are portions of the book that read as if I have no idea what I'm going to do with this manuscript after it's finished. Uh, there are parts of the book where I raise questions like, should I come out to everyone or would it be better if I just sort of kept this secret for the rest of my life? And at the time I was writing those things, I really had no idea what the answer to that question would be. Yeah, there is a certain stream of consciousness about some of it, which is very interesting to read. Um, so what reaction have you had from people? I mean, it was published last year, wasn't it? So uh, there's been quite a lot of time for people to react to it. How have people reacted on the non-Christian side, the liberal Christians, the conservative Christians? What, what has it been? <laughs> you know, I've found I was braced for a wide variety of responses. Mm. I was braced to encounter some folks who would find me distressingly liberal, so to speak, mm. And to find other folks who would find me sort of distressingly conservative. Yes. And and then a, a host of reactions in between. You know, the folks who perhaps thought I was a bit unusual but weren't necessarily troubled or aggressive. And then folks who were very much in my camp, so to speak, uh, and who would even who would even respond by saying, wow, this is the sort of thing that I was hoping that someone could say. Um, I did receive responses all across the spectrum, both from uh, random strangers and from people who I knew well, people in my own life. Um, I did have some relational difficulties as a result of the book, but I've also had a lot of really, really wonderful relational gifts as a result of it. Hmm. Now, I want to... I want us to get used to you as a person as we go through this interview. And I want the ideas that you explore in the book to come out of our conversation rather than just go straight into the abstractions. So I'd like to follow your life's path to a certain extent, see how we can, as it were, get to know you in the interview. You were brought up as a Christian very early in your childhood. You were in Indonesia and uh, you write in such a way to suggest that that time had quite an effect upon you. Um, could you describe to us what effect that had on you? Sure. Well, Indonesia at the time I was growing up there was a somewhat politically tumultuous place to live. And so I grew up being very aware that the world could potentially be a dangerous place, hmm. which is not to say that my my life specifically was particularly dangerous. But I think compared to some of my American friends who grew up in America, I found that my childhood included a lot more awareness of the tenuousness and uncertainty of life as a human being. And so that uncertainty made me feel relatively early in my life that I needed to make sure that I knew what this whole business about God was, that I understood the possibility of life after death, that I was aware of the the meaning of life, as it were. I think I was a, I was attending to those questions very young in a way that I think is unusual for a lot of people. Hmm. What sort of age were you then while you were thinking those thoughts? Oh, 
five, six, seven years old. I was seven when I had a specific conversation with my dad that I, from that point onward, sort of marked as my salvation moment. Uh, when I specifically asked, how do I become a Christian and and prayed, that was a sort of a turning point. But even even prior to the age of seven, I was already asking those sorts of questions. Yes, wrestling with things at a very early age indeed. But then, of course, you went on to wrestle with other questions soon after, because when you hit puberty, you say in the book that you you didn't have the same kinds of feelings for girls as most other boys of, of your age. In fact, you thought that God had, in a way, gifted you <laughs> to escape sexual matters because that, that sort of freed you in a sense. But um, that didn't turn out to be the case. Right. I think because I grew up in an evangelical Christian context, the thing that I had been trained to expect was that I would develop this sort of uncontrollable urge to look at naked women. So when it never happened, I did initially feel like I had I had lucked out that I was perhaps the holiest 11-year-old in the world. <laughs> and so yeah. it wasn't until I began to put some other pieces together that I recognized, oh, I in fact do have an experience of sexuality. And it in fact is an experience of sexuality that is marked by the fall in the same way that all my straight friends do. But mine is just different. Mine is not like the one that I had expected. Now, of course, this stirring here was a homosexual one. And uh, you say that that crept up upon you. Um, that's the language of something happening which you're not really conscious of and then you become conscious of it isn't it so how did that happen i think because in my mind anything sexual was a thing that had to do with uh women or in in my case it was supposed to be a thing that in my mind would have to do with women uh the initial thoughts that i was having about men i i just lacked a category to file them away as sexual thoughts mm. and so I think the the moment of awareness wasn't so much that I that I was having no kind of sexual development and all of a sudden I was, but it was rather that there was a moment where it suddenly occurred to me that the the ways in which my uh, sexual thoughts had been developing was in fact sexual to begin with. Mm -hmm. And you say in the book that you discovered this. Am I right? Through a, a Google search or something that suddenly there was a word to describe you. Is that right? <laughs> I think I found the word gay through Google. I could be wrong about that. It's it's hard to recreate some of these memories uh, yeah. retrospectively. Um, and of course, you know, I don't think Google existed at this point. This was some other obscure search engine that I was using. Yeah, you say that you had a definite sense that you hadn't really chosen anything. Um, and you say, I think this is an exact quote from the book, wasn't it supposed to be a choice? But you hadn't actually chosen anything. This just happens to you. That must have been very confusing, really. Yeah, and and I should be clear, there are there are things about what I was experiencing that that were my choice. The the ways in which I chose to respond to the the thoughts that I was having, or the what seemed uh, to be my sort of orientation, I did choose what I did with that. Mm. But I didn't choose. It seemed the sort of cards that I brought to the table. Mm. And you went through quite a lot of prayer personally to be made straight uh, i get the impression that you prayed about this continually for many years um, but obviously god didn't do that and you say that what helped you in particular was where paul speaks in second uh, corinthians about the thorn in the flesh um why was that so important for you i think what was remarkable about that passage to me was the recognition that 
Paul had identified something that seemed like it would be better if God could fix, so to speak, a sort of a healing that he felt like he needed, and that the response of God to that request from Paul was not necessarily to say that it was wrong of Paul to ask, but it was to say that God had a kind of divine intentionality in the state of things, uh, such that Paul misunderstood what what real healing or wholeness in following Jesus would look like. Uh, And so God's response to Paul was a no, but it was a no in the way of saying, I actually have something for you that is better than the kind of healing that you are expecting. And so I think as I thought about that passage in relation to my own experience, I won't necessarily claim that there's a sort of a one-to-one correspondence there. But I I do think in my own experience, through those years of coming to God and saying, God, would would you change me? Would you make me straight so that I could be sort of more normal and more like everyone else? That God instead said, why would I, why would I, um, change one of the things that has become an engine to drive you to me, that God has used this part of my life so much uh, in my discipleship to drive me to pursue him more deeply. Hmm. And so you embraced singleness. Now, I think you say that this is to be understood essentially as your personal decision, that you're not insisting that everybody else think the same way as you. This is your personal decision. And later in your life, you went through a period of investigating quite deeply what the Bible says, but also looking at other material that was questioning how to read the Bible on these issues. And you say to some extent you you wanted to find the answer that it would have been okay to express your particular sexuality as a Christian, but you reached the conclusion that that was not the case and you embraced this singleness. Could you describe... I know this is a very complex thing to talk about, but could you give us a general impression of how you came to that decision, wrestling with the biblical texts and the other things you were reading? Yeah, I think there were three things in my journey that were that were really important for me to come to understand as I wrestled with the questions about biblical sexual ethics and as I ultimately landed in the place that I did. Uh, first, it was really valuable for me to recognize that our impulse to reinvestigate the biblical text is actually a really good and noble impulse. Um, that there's nothing wrong with saying, I need to double check and make sure that the thing I've been told about scripture or the thing I just assumed was true about scripture because it was what I saw other people doing, I need to double check and make sure that that really is what the Bible says. Mm. Uh, as I was beginning this investigation, it was easy to feel guilty about raising that question. But for me, at least, it was incredibly important. It was a part of the process of becoming confident in Jesus that I had the boldness to raise the question and was willing to consider the possibility that the Bible might prove me wrong, that if I trusted the Bible, it might actually change what I believed. So it was valuable to come to the Bible with that openness. And when I came then with that kind of openness, I found the second thing, which was that the topic of sexuality in the Bible was a bit more complicated, at least than the narrative that I had heard growing up. Because what I heard growing up was this fairly simplistic, you know, here it is, the word homosexuals in the Bible, and it's bad, so don't do it. 
the end. Good talk. Let's find something more complicated. Let's talk about predestination instead. Um, but <laughs> let's not. But sorry. Yeah, go. <laughs> go. When I began to dig in, though, I I realized that that conversation was actually quite complicated by things like translation. So to give just one fairly simple example, uh, there are two moments in the in the biblical text. There's a passage in First Corinthians and a passage in First Timothy where uh, there's a word that in my NIV translation, at least, I think is translated homosexual offenders. And uh, in Greek, that word is arsenakoitai, which is a compound of two other Greek words, the word uh, arsene, which means uh, male, and the word uh, koiti, which means bed. And so if you put them together, you know, a man better, you can sort of take a guess, oh yeah, that sounds like it's probably someone engaging in a same-sex sexual relationship. But it's a little bit risky for us to look at compound words in that way, in the same way that we can't look at the English word butterfly and say, oh, you know, butterfly, it's like a winged dairy product. So we need to have caution. And it turns out that that particular word, arsenakoitai, Paul's uses of it in in the New Testament are the first place that word shows up anywhere in all the Greek writings that we have access to. So Mm -hmm. it's really hard for us to construct a precise meaning. Now, I do think there are good ways to take very educated guesses at what that word means in those two passages. And I do think that the conclusion that says, yes, Paul really is trying to tell us that we're called to say no to same-sex sexual expression, I think that is the best answer. Mm. But I needed to I needed to first recognize that it was complicated. Yes. Um, and once I recognized that, then I was finally able to come to that third point of saying, despite the complexity, there is a best answer to this question that I think the Bible calls us to. And that was how I finally came to this place I did of saying, it seems to me that I'm, I'm remain gay, and yet it also seems to me that the Bible is calling me to say no to same-sex sexual expression. And that left me in the sort of strange liminal space that I now exist in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very interested the way you round up that conversation in the book. You obviously go through some of those technical things there that you've just shared. And of course, while you're going through those technical things, and you're reading the book, you think you're going to reach the opposite conclusion to what you've just said. But uh, you, you lead us through to your final conclusion. And as you do that, you bring in other aspects which are much more personal than just that abstract discussion there. Because you, you talk about things like... Um, you found that Jesus was silent about you because when you read the Bible, he himself doesn't talk about homosexuality. And that and that bothered you. You continue that train of thought and find that actually because Jesus was teaching about ethical matters and he was speaking to an audience that would have understood the Old Testament position on various things, then in fact he would have been speaking about standard ethical matters that they would have understood, which did include you. Um, so he was speaking about you after all. Now, all that is to you very deeply interacting with biblical theology there, reaching this conclusion that you've already spoken to us. Quite complicated now for us to try to describe to the audience without them reading the book. But could you give us some idea, give the audience some idea of what you were doing there with, with that theological reflection there that helped you reach the conclusion that you've reached? I think it was important for me to recognize that I had not been forgotten by God. 
as I said earlier, so much of my thought and fear growing up was that I was some sort of mistake, some sort of aberration in the divine narrative that God had not meant to allow me to be what I was. And I found as I was weighing uh, these what are called the affirming interpretations of the biblical sexual ethic, as I was weighing those interpretations, I found that it seemed to me the sort of most optimistic narrative I could find was one that said, any passage that seems to speak about your particular experience of sexual desire, it isn't really talking to you. It's actually talking to somebody else. And so the very best case scenario, it seemed, for that progressive sexual ethic was to argue that Jesus had, in fact, just failed to mention me altogether. Mm. And because I think my heart was so hungry to believe that God saw me and knew me um, and that there was something particular that he was calling me to— when I read the Bible, seeking to know, Jesus, if you really see me, what is it that you see in me and what is it that you call me to? When I read the Bible through that lens, then I found that all of those passages that maybe could be dismissed, um, I in fact wanted them to speak to me, even though I didn't particularly like what they said. Um, right. Even though I would yeah. have preferred that they said something else, there was still something refreshing about knowing that I was seen and that I was called in a particular way to follow Jesus. And so you felt that you had to be honest to yourself and to God and to embrace celibacy. But as I said before, you're not actually preaching to everybody and, and saying, this is what you have to agree with, are you? That's not your intention. I think it's very tempting for all of us to feel like it's our job to weigh in on exactly how everyone else answers certain theological questions. Some people do ask my opinion, hey, do you think I'm right or wrong about this? I'm always glad to give opinions. I'm full of opinions about everything. And yet, ultimately, I don't think that me uh, trying to force someone else to live as if they happen to agree with me about a difficult theological question, I don't think that's the thing that ultimately calls people into Jesus. I think it's Jesus who calls people into Jesus. And I have the privilege of existing as someone who says, this is what I hear Jesus calling me to. And I think it's very possible that he might be calling you to it also, even though maybe you don't want to hear that. Um, mm. it, but it's important for me to distinguish that from just sort of going around and trying to beat everyone over the head into submission so that we all think alike on everything. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, however, I am going to draw you into this just a little here, just to uh, challenge you here, Greg. Sorry about this. Sure. <laughs> so, okay, you're not preaching directly to people, but indeed you are laying out your case and your experience. And of course, therefore, people are going to look at that and you're inviting them to take seriously what you've said. And what you've said is something that has this kind of implication, that if somebody is homosexual and they are decisively so uh let's say reorientation isn't going to work for them. And you did discuss this in the book. I'll probably ask you about that in a, in a minute. Let, let's say that reorientation isn't an option. They are decisively homosexual. Then judging by your interpretation, of what the Bible says, etc., they should remain single. That's the message they're going to get from reading your book, even though you're not directly saying it to them. So my question to you here is, might it not be argued that singleness is 
likely to be a tremendous burden for that kind of person. I mean, couldn't we say there are going to be people who don't have the gift of celibacy? I mean, doesn't Paul imply that celibacy is a gift in 1 Corinthians? Um, Let let me just quote this. Um, To the unmarried and and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul seems to imply that not everybody has this gift of self-control, which is this state of celibacy that he's calling people to in that particular set of historical circumstances. So too, by extension, could we not say that perhaps not every gay person has such a gift of self-control. So if that's the case, what do you say to such people? I think the gift of celibacy is a complicated thing in the sense that there are some gifts that you wish came with gift receipts, if you will. (laughs) There's such a thing as receiving a gift that is given on behalf of the body. And I think when Paul talks about uh, that kind of gift, um, there are, there are two Greek words for gift, incidentally. So there's a, there's the uh, charisma, which is the, the kind of gift that we have here. Um, and then there's the doron. Um, and the doron is, is more like a gift you might give to someone at a birthday party, um, a gift that is given for the benefit of the person receiving the gift. Um, and then there's a, a charisma. And that is uh, the person who has that gift is a conduit of God's blessing to the body of Christ. So it's a gift given for the sake of the body, not necessarily a gift given merely for the delight of the person receiving it. And I think that is at least a big part of what I think Paul has in mind when he speaks of celibacy as a gift, is that those who exist celibately within the body of Christ are a gift to the body in the ways that we are equipped to love and to serve. Um, But it seems to me Uh, Again, this is my best understanding of 1 Corinthians 7. It seems to me that Paul's saying um, there are people who are going to really, really strongly desire marriage. And I think when Paul speaks of marriage there, my best understanding is that he has in mind marriage between male and female. Sure. Um, Mm. Paul says there are people who who are really strongly going to desire that kind of union, and their desire for it would become a severe distraction to them if they did anything else. And then there are some people who are not going to desire that particular marital union. Um, and I, as somebody who is gay, find that I don't particularly desire a male-female sexual union. And so I think within the categories that Paul sets up, I think I fall pretty tidily into the category of those who are called to celibacy, which of course is not to say that uh, in choosing the vocation of celibacy, I am completely devoid of any possibility for sexual temptation in the same way that a person who embraces marriage is not thereby completely devoid of any temptation for sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage. And yet we have, I think, these two vocations that Paul lays out and says, here are two vocations within which you can steward your experience of sexual orientation, of sexual desire. Um, Now you judge with the Lord which one is going to best help you uh, love Jesus faithfully and which one is going to best help you be a gift to the body of Christ. Yes, thank you for that clarification on on the word gift. There, I wasn't, uh, I hadn't really thought about that. I wasn't aware of that uh, distinction. That that is helpful. So let's. Okay, I'm going to sidestep that um, in order to ask the question perhaps more pointedly. Um, yeah, sure. 
Do you therefore say that there is no one who is indeed decisively homosexual who cannot embrace celibacy? You know, because we all know there are cases where people even commit suicide because of the great difficulty of this. Mm. Now, I know this is this is an impossible question to put to you, so I'm, I'm not going to say to you what's the answer, but do you have any reflections upon that category, that difficulty? I have a few, and, and even my few will fall so far short of mm. the potential depth of the question. But one one thing I would want to be quick to say, because I want to very much agree with you that I think there are a lot of ways in which uh, the celibate gay vocation can easily become an occasion for depression, even an occasion for suicidality. Um, and I don't think those are things that Jesus is ultimately trying to steward his people into. I think if we find ourselves in that kind of place, um, I don't think the answer is, well, this is exactly what Jesus wants you to be experiencing, so just grin and bear it. Uh, but I think that part of the reason celibacy can feel so sort of impossible for a lot of us, even at times for me, uh, is that the way our 21st century Western society, and even I think perhaps even especially our 21st century Western churches conceive of relational intimacy is so sort of bounded by the nuclear family, by the pursuit of marriage that it then becomes impossible to imagine any kind of rich and life-giving family mm. apart from the pursuit of marriage. That's an excellent point. In fact, you do bring some of that out in the book, don't you? You speak about your experience of being included in a particular family um, at a certain point. You felt like you were one with that family, and that was enormously helpful to you. Yeah, and I think if I thought that I were called to live my life without any experience of family, that would, I think, feel like an unbearable burden to me. Mm. But one of the things that I cling to, and this is this is a promise from Jesus that I speak to this toward the end of my book. It's one of my sort of hopeful gestures. Uh, there's this moment, and it's in all three of the synoptic gospels, so you know it must be important. It's in Matthew 19, and then in Mark 10, and in Luke 18, where uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and Peter, who's always kind of the mouthy disciple, mm. says, you know, Jesus, we kind of left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, there's no one who has left father or mother or sisters or brothers or f wives or children or fields or he cows. I don't know. He makes a long list. <laughs> yeah. It's like all the family things. No one who has left all this family, all this sense of belonging um, will fail to receive, uh, Jesus says, a hundred times as much in this life um, and in the age to come eternal life. And I think one of the things that's so striking to me about that is that Jesus pairs this reality of saying, yes, there are things that you are called to give up for the sake of the gospel. And I think in my shoes, I do feel there are there are desires for a particular kind of family that I am called to give up. Um, and yet, if Jesus is actually telling the truth, then it turns out that in giving those things up and in following Jesus, I actually receive a hundredfold as much of that family, of that belonging. Um, and so I think that that is at least, again, that is what I've found in my own experience, um, that as I have said no to a certain more obvious way of 
experiencing intimacy and belonging that I have received so much in return. Okay. Well, as you're talking about the quality of your life, let's jump back into something of your life here. I want to ask you about girlfriends. Now, you do actually talk about girlfriends in the book. And beginning of one chapter where you describe a relationship that you had, I think is absolutely beautifully written. I just want to read this because I was really struck by the way you conjure up the whole scene here. So this is you're describing um, a kiss with a girlfriend at college. And these words, I think, are so evocative the way you write them. Let me just quote this. The first time we kissed, it was raining. Not storybook rain, real rain, wet rain. A cold October drizzle, to be precise, the kind that brought out the earthworms and the smell of New York dirt. It thrummed against the asphalt of the parking lot, rhythmic enough to pass as music, loud enough to give the illusion of privacy. I love the way you write that. I was I was transported. You know, I could almost smell and and, and you know touch the <laughs> the atmosphere. Um, so okay, so you write about this experience at the time. I understand that you were hoping that things might somehow work out, that God was going to change you, um, but obviously that didn't happen. Could you describe how those relationships went on your journey, and to what extent they were a blessing, to what extent they were difficult? So, fun fact about that passage that you just read: mm. those were the very first sentences that I wrote in this book. Oh, wow. Uh, mm -hmm. That was where I began was with that memory uh -huh. and everything else kind of, you know, everything before and after sort of emerged from that moment. That's so that yes. passage has, you know, it's special to me, too. Yes. That's why it sprung out to me, isn't it? Because obviously you felt that so much when you wrote it. Yes. So, you know, I think when I first came out of that relationship, so that relationship that I describe in the book is the only relationship that I was ever formally in. Hmm. You know, I had sort of near relationships. I had moments of mutual interest with people. But that was kind of my one experience of formally we are calling each other boyfriend and girlfriend and people know about it. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And when it ended, it was very easy to feel uh, like it was a failure. I think particularly for me, because I was acutely aware of the fact that the woman I was in a relationship with had been a very dear friend. Uh, before we began dating, and after we finished dating, was still a dear friend, but our relationship had gotten so awkward that it was difficult to be around one another. Uh, so I, I felt very acutely the, the loss of that. Um, in retrospect, I've been so grateful. In fact, so when I finished this book manuscript, and I was trying to discern, is this a book manuscript that I'm going to do something with? Do I just want to burn it or confine it to the digital archives forever? <laughs> As I was trying to go through that process of discernment, one of the things that I did was I took the entire manuscript and I sent it to my, uh, my ex-girlfriend, who at that point I had still not come out to. When we broke up, it was, as I described in the book, I, I offered other reasons that felt like maybe they were the reasons, but I sort of knew in my heart were all of the reasons. So, so I sent her this manuscript and came out to her and said, I don't know now what I'm doing with this thing that I've just written, but I think you should see it. And she, in fact, was one of the first people who read the manuscript and told me, I think you have to do something with this. Um, and so, so she was actually quite influential in uh, turning this from a manuscript that no one would ever read 
into a thing that became a book. And I was struck even even as I was having those conversations with her, even as she was being so gracious four or five years after the fact, I was struck by like, wow, I had really good taste in girlfriends. Uh, like, boy, <laughs> yes. for a gay guy, I really knew how to pick a girlfriend, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was, I, I, I was richly blessed uh, in the sense of really enjoying an occasion to have a very dear friend. Um, but I think where I failed in that relationship was in trying to make it be something more than a friendship when that wasn't something that I was really capable of desiring in the way that I wanted to. Hmm. Okay. Um, I want to invite you to contrast two experiences because I think together they're very helpful for people to form an impression of where you're coming from. Um, you talk about, I think you've already mentioned this, um, a discussion that you had with a pastor who you became very good friends with. I think this is when you were at grad school in Pennsylvania. You came out to him and he said something like, Greg, you're not a mistake. Something like that anyway. And that was extremely important to you. Now, I want to contrast that, or rather invite you to contrast that with an experience that you had. I don't know whether it was the same church or another church. And it was a lady who was speaking. Um, she was giving an address to this congregation. And she was talking about homosexuality, but she was doing it in a very insensitive way. She'd obviously not really thought it through very much. Um, and you felt especially hurt by that. I think you left the room and you you cried bitterly, um, although somebody did actually come to your, your side in, in friendship. Um, so... Obviously, there was a sense there that you were a mistake. <laughs> um, so could you contrast those two experiences and why did you put those two in the book? Well, to why I put those particular experiences in the book, the conversation that I had with my pastor uh, where he said, and, and, you've, and you've nailed it exactly verbatim, uh, you are not a mistake. Uh-huh. That was hearing, – hearing those words from him were the first time that I had ever heard those words with regard to my experience of sexuality from anyone. And, mm. and it marked a really significant turning point for me. It was interesting because retrospectively, I, I talked with him uh, much later, you know, even after the book came out, I've talked with him about that moment. And he said, you know, to me at the time, I felt like I was saying something very uncontroversial. Hmm. Um, I just thought I was speaking to the fact that, you know, you're a child of God, you know, created in his image, loved by him. Um, but what I think was so significant to me was that someone could see me. Um, I I think I had spent so much of my life feeling unseen and feeling like if I were seen, I would be unacceptable. Um, and so what was remarkable in that moment was that I could be Mm. seen and have someone still say about me, you are not a mistake. Uh, and I think by contrast, the other story that you speak to, um, the story of this woman sort of declaiming to a bit of our congregation was particularly remarkable because in that moment I felt so unseen. Um, I, and I felt like my fears were confirmed that if I were seen, I would be rejected. Mm-hmm. Which came first, by the way? Which of those experiences? Uh, the conversation with my pastor preceded the other, I think just by about a month, Uh um, because I think I had just come out to him. And so he was the only person in that room who, who, uh, I was out to. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's get back to the abstraction. This is about your, your thoughts about your identity. So you, you want to be seen, you want to be understood as who you are. This is obviously very, very, very important to you and central to the book. You are a gay man. You are Christian and you're single. These are all central to your your identity 
And I take your argument in the book that, uh, you know, a lot of people say labels aren't important. And you argue, well, they are in a certain sense. Labels like, you know, black, white, British American, um, theologian, scientist, whatever, that they are important because they do tell us important things about a person. And so the label gay is also important in that sense because it tells us something crucial about the person. I, I really do take that. Um, some people would say that your identity as a Christian should be in Christ alone. How would you respond to that? I think I, on, on, on one level, I agree with that statement in the sense that I agree that the, that the fundamental determiner of who we are in Christ is, in fact, Christ himself. Hmm. Uh, that's the radical claim of the gospel, is that the thing that matters most in your relationship to God has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with Jesus. Um, and so as we approach God— the thing that makes us able to approach God is the person of Jesus, right? It's not about it's not about our particular experience of the world. It's not about our race. It's not about our sexuality. It's about the person of Jesus covering over our sinfulness, making us holy, bringing us into fellowship with God. Um, and so in that sense, yes, absolutely, our identity is in Christ and nothing else. Um one of the tricky things about language, and I love that language is tricky because this is how I stay in a job as a PhD student <laughs> in English, is that language is tricky and it's sort of endlessly giving of things to think about. Mm. One of the tricky things about language in this case is that the word identity can serve so many functions. If, and if we think about identity at its etymological level, uh, so it comes from the Latin word idem, which means the same. And in the way the word developed into identity, identitas in, I think it was medieval Latin, um, I could be wrong here, Latin is not my strongest language, but identitas could mean both a sameness and an identity. So one way of thinking about identity is to think about uh, finding a group of people and saying, oh, you and I are the same in this way. Uh, and so anytime we draw a category of sameness, we're sort of noting some similarity that we have, even as we recognize that within that category, there can be a whole bunch of differences. So I can say to another person, oh, you and I both wear glasses. And so we have this shared identity as glasses wearers, even though uh, there are so many other things about us may be different. We may have different perspectives on uh, politics, on religion. We may have different racial backgrounds all of these things, but we found a way in which we have a shared identity. And it seems to me that instinctively, as Christians, we tend to recognize that we can have identities in the sense that we can have things that we share, experiences we share with a certain group of people and not with others, um, and that those things don't inherently have any bearing on the fact that our fundamental spiritual identity is in Jesus. Um, an example I like to give, because I'm in an American context and because American politics has recently just been a brouhaha, um, <laughs> yes. I love to, I, I think it can be helpful to ask, uh, to ask Christians in America, would you consider yourself an American Christian? Because I think there's a way in which uh, American Christian can mean, oh, I am a person who follows Jesus and I have an American citizenship. And so this is simply a true fact about some of the biographical details in my life. Uh, and so in that sense, yes, absolutely, I am an American Christian. However, there is also a way of being an American Christian, 
In other words, having a form of Christianity that is fundamentally tinged by your Americanness. Um, and this, I would argue, is what, without getting too much into American politics, which um, <laughs> which thankfully you don't have to get into, so I'm not going to get into it. Um, no, I'm quite happy that you don't. Yes, okay, <laughs> yes without getting into it, I will say sure. I think there are a group of people uh, who take their national identity. This is probably true in uh, in the UK. I know it's true other places in the world. I think there are Christians who take their national identity and use that national identity as a way of flavoring what their faith is and means, what the implications of their faith ought to be. And I think that can be concerning. Sure. I think there's a there's a point at which uh, the way we conceive of national identity becomes an impediment to the truth of the gospel. But I don't think that acknowledging our national identity is inherently getting in the way of our identity in Christ. Does that distinction kind of make sense? I know it's a bit esoteric, but I, I find it important. It does, actually. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we've had conversations along those lines on TMR before over the years. So your fundamental spiritual identity is indeed in Christ, but there are other, as with anyone else, there are other aspects to your personality that go to define who you are as a person, but they're not fundamental to you in a spiritual sense. Um, as I say, I take that point mm. um, very much. Indeed. Well, Greg, I think we'll have to leave it there. It would certainly be good to go on chatting about these things forever and a day, but uh, life carries on. A really fascinating discussion. And as I said before, I think it's a very good book, which I hope everybody will read. And I think everybody will realize, listening to this conversation, that it is a challenging book in some ways, a challenge to people from many different viewpoints and different backgrounds, I think, um, through really asking questions. I think you ask more questions than provide answers. And I think that's very important. Uh, whatever ultimately we decide about these issues, it's always good to have our opinions challenged. I don't agree with everything that's in this book. But that's not the point. The point is being open to each other and to what we each have to say, whatever we decide in the end. So as I say, I do recommend this to everybody, whether you're an evangelical Christian or a Christian of a more liberal persuasion or somewhere in between, whatever these labels mean anyway, um, or indeed someone who claims no faith or another faith, do read it because apart from being a delight to read, it's very, very thought-provoking to boot. So Greg, thanks ever so much for coming on the program. I've enjoyed the chat very much and uh, best wishes for your PhD, which I understand you're going to complete very soon. Yes, God willing, I'll defend <laughs> maybe sometime in September. Uh -huh. So All the best. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It's been a real treat talking with you. And if you'd like to get hold of a copy of that and read it for yourself, you'll find a link to that book in the show notes for today's program, which you'll find at themindrenewed.com. And that will take you through to the appropriate page at InterVarsity Press. And I think, actually, there's an ebook version of it there that you will not find on Amazon. Now, just before we leave today's program, a request, please, to listeners to whom this might apply, and I don't think it'll apply to many of you, um, but there might be a few. Um, every now and again, when there's been a controversial subject on the program, I get some emails from people asking me why I've asked certain questions in the way that I have during the interview. Um, so maybe, for example, if I'm um, interviewing somebody like Paul Craig Roberts, I might say, the BBC reports such and such, or doesn't the government say this or that? And then I'll get some emails come in saying, how can you believe what the BBC says? Or how can you believe what the government says? And um, anticipating what might come my way after today's programme, 
how can you suggest that it's okay to be such and such? Or how can you suggest that it's not okay to be such and such? And uh, please do not send me emails like that because what I'm trying to do when I ask questions like that is simply to bring out my guests argument. You know, that's my style. I'm rather old fashioned in the way that I do things. That's how I understand part of interviewing to be. If I quote the BBC, it doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with the BBC. If I do, I will probably say that I do. So just to save everybody's time and uh, my sanity, please do resist the temptation to do that if you're likely to do such a thing. But uh, as I say, I, I think it's most unlikely that applies to many of you out there at all. But of course, if you do have constructive things to say, then by all means, do share your thoughts with me. That would be great. The final thing I want to add today is in about a week from now, we're going to have a short holiday. So TMR will be taking a short summer break, which I'm hoping won't mean that the fortnightly pattern of podcasts gets broken, though it may, who knows, but it will almost certainly mean that I'll share an item of interest again, as I sometimes do during holiday times. Um, I may share another talk by Bill Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig, which will again be exclusive to TMR, um, because I know that quite a few of you enjoyed the last one that I shared, judging by the response to that, but uh, I will see. I haven't yet decided on that. So that will probably be next time, and then, God willing, the interviews will pick up again a fortnight after that. And uh, for what those programs might be, please do check out the schedule page at TMR, which is pretty easy to find. You'll find that at https colon forward slash forward slash themindrenewed.com forward slash schedule. And I'll keep updating that as and when guest arrangements become more secure, because there are a few in the pipeline as usual, but they are not finalized yet. When they're finalized, they'll be up there on the schedule page. So that is it for today. Uh, thanks again to those of you who support the show with your financial contributions towards costs here. I, I do remain enormously grateful to you for doing that. And also to those of you who pray for TMR. Um, not everything that happens here at TMR is overtly spiritual, but as many of you will appreciate, it is all nevertheless embedded within a spiritual conception here as a ministry. It is a small ministry. I make no pretensions that TMR is anything huge. It's not, but it is helpful to many people in their spiritual walk. So I've been told. And so uh, prayer is very necessary and indeed very much appreciated. So thanks to those of you who do that. And again, thanks to those of you who support the show in other ways. So that really is it for today. Um, thank you again for listening. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.